0: We are so happy to have you here, and we're very excited about this program. And in particular, um, we all get kind of in a tizzy when Crystal Pite's in town, and she's right there. So, yeah. I'm going to gloss through her biography, which I think you have in your hands. But um, for me, Crystal Pite. came to my life when Noelani Pantastico walked in my office and said, have you been watching or have you heard about Crystal Pite? She's a choreographer that you're going to want to pay attention to. And I think you were coming to Seattle not long after that, so I credit Noe with that. Seattle's had the great benefit of seeing you and your company, Kid Pivot, quite often. PNB is doing their second work by Crystal tonight, and I think we get Betroffenheit back at the Moor coming up. So... So, yeah, welcome. So happy to have you here.
1: Thank you. We love coming to Seattle.
0: We're lucky because Crystal lives not that far away in a town called Vancouver. (laughs) Um, So we have the proximity thing. You're from near Victoria originally, right? Yeah. 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 What was it like growing up there? It's such a beautiful place. It's a lot like
1: growing up here, I would expect. Yeah, this beautiful West Coast place. I think it's really had an effect on me.
0: And someone took you to a ballet lesson when you were, or did you ask to have a ballet lesson? I don't lesson? remember
1: how it started. I was about four at yeah. the time. Um, my mom probably had friends who had their kids in ballet, and they, she put me in too. I was always dancing around the house, so yeah. just went on from there. Yeah. yeah.
0: And ballet, um, I heard you once say you felt like an imposter in ballet. Um, you felt like you were just faking it well, I assume, because yes. you did so well in ballet. Um, where, where, where did you feel at home? I mean, when was the moment that dance and you connected in the right way?
1: I think, uh, I mean I studied all kinds of different dance growing up I did tap and jazz and musical theater and I was in the drama program and I was in the choir and I was in the band and I was in the student council. I did all kinds of things um, that I think um, added up to the things that I care about now in terms of the things I like to watch and the things I like to make. Um, I think when I was was little, uh, I I always studied ballet. Uh, Classical ballet was always my default. But there was this thing Um, At the time, we didn't call it contemporary dance. We called it interpretive dance, but it was basically the same thing. It was bare feet and dragging props around and stuff. So I, I really connected with that. Interpretive dance was my favorite thing to do, and it was what I always tried to choreograph when I was starting in those early years. Choreographing as a child, I liked to choreograph things that were interpretive. And I later realized that what I was doing was something maybe more in the contemporary dance category of things, if these things can be given a name. Uh, so that was always my favorite way of moving. Um, but I kept up with the ballet because it was a it was a career path. It was a way in. It was a, a way forward for me.
0: So you were choreographing right from the start? As soon yes. as you started learning to move, and maybe even before you were already Yes, I've always
1: choreographed as well as danced. I've always done both.
0: And did you think of it as something that you would become choreographer, or you're solely focused on, on having the performing career?
1: Uh, I think initially I wanted to be a dancer, and that was my main focus, but in in Victoria growing up, I don't know if we probably have similar things, sort of a competition kid, and and we had um, competitions, and there was a category for young choreographers, so I would enter something in the competition every year as a young choreographer. And, uh, you know, over the years, um, sometimes I would choreograph things on myself, and sometimes I would choreograph things on my friends. Um, And I had, yeah, by the time I was in high school, I was choreographing the high school musical, and and I was... um, just always choreographed. I've always loved choreographing. It's always been part of the way I've experienced dance as a form.
0: I would love to see that high school musical. Was it like? Did it have like stuff? No, no, no.
1: Character? It would have been pretty straight up choreography. Yeah, pretty, pretty standard stuff. Yeah.
0: Ballet BC is, I don't know if you guys have seen Ballet BC. It's such a great company. It's a small company, but it does progressive contemporary work under the guidance of Emily Molnar. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- that was your first professional job.
1: That's right. I danced yeah. there from the time I was 17 until I was 25.
0: And At 25 you crossed the ocean?
1: Right. And I joined Frankfurt Ballet in Frankfurt, Germany under the direction of William Forsyth. And I danced there for five years. And then after that I moved back to Vancouver and started my own company.
0: And why your own company? Did you want to um, sample as a freelance choreographer first? Or did you feel like your own company was the right launch?
1: Yeah, I always had, the at the time, I would have been about 30 at the time, it was always my dream to dance in my own work. I'd never done that before, really, other than when I was a little kid. And so um, dancing in my own work was something I always imagined would be, first of all, my final destination as a dancer. That's where I really wanted to um, be as a performer. And then as the years went by and I collected more and more colleagues and friends and people to dance in, in my own company, um it took on a, a sort of a larger scale thing. Initially it was a very small scale operation. Most of the, the shows that I made in the early days were just myself and maybe one other performer.
0: Wow, oh, that's that's brave. Um, I don't know how many of you have been able to see Kid Pivot when they've come to On the Boards, um, and also, as I said, the more. Um, and I've, we've seen you guys on the road at Jacob's Pillow and various other places. Um, the, the schedule's a little different, isn't it? You'll create a show, and then that show tours for an extended period of time.
1: Right. Um, and when I make things for my own company, I tend to take a longer time to make them. So it may take, you know, from the first meetings to the actual premiere, it can take two years on and off, different phases. Um, whereas in the context of a ballet company, it's usually you know four or five weeks from the first rehearsal to the performance. So it's a really, really different time scale. Um, so with my own company, I like to take that that longer period of time, and then once the work has premiered, yeah, we we tour it, so it can it can be on tour for four or five years, and and. I always try to choose carefully the content that I work with in, in any work that I make but particularly in the context of my own company I try try to choose very carefully what kind of a show we make because whatever we make we're going to be living with it and not just me but all the dancers in my company and all of our loved ones and everyone that's like surrounding this thing. we're going to be living with this show and with this content for it could be five seven years.
0: And each time you create a new work, are you working with the same dancers or people come and go, I suppose?
1: People come and go a little bit. I've had the same, pretty much the same group for the last 10 years or so with some variations. But uh, I do change it from project to project depending on who's available and what we want to work on.
0: I think that's so interesting. Are they like, Crystal? What's the next project? Because I'm deciding if I want to do it or not. <laughs> I don't like that one. I'm not going to do it. So.
1: <laughs> because it's, we never really know what the next project's going to be until we make it. So it's always a leap of faith.
0: Do you find it restrictive? Because I know ballet companies, even at PNB, we would say we would expect a six-week period for creation, and then we've sort of worked it down to four weeks now. We want choreographers to work in four weeks, and it's all sort of a demand of budgets and timing and. Do you find that restrictive?
1: Yes yeah <laughs> the sh- I mean that's the short answer, but it's it all it's all about expectations and, and you know your, your level of ambition and um, time management skills and those sorts of things. Um, With with some recent works that I've done, some large-scale pieces that I've made uh, for ballet companies, I've been working with a group of students in Vancouver uh, associated with a school called Arts Umbrella, where I'm an artist-in-residence, and I I use their studio space, and I, I run kind of a choreographic mentorship program there. And I also have access to the students, so I've been able to kind of workshop ideas with the students before I've gone to these big projects where I've had to work very, very fast, very efficiently. So I've been showing up at these ballet companies with sort of you know 10 minutes of actual choreography that I pick up and bring with me. Um, and that takes a, takes a big chunk out of the, the, um, the stress, for sure.
0: I um, will want to talk about Plot Point um, tonight, of course. Um, but before we do, Probably the first large-scale classical ballet company was that National Ballet of Canada for emergence? That's right, yes. was w- it like when you walk into that sort of hierarchical setting with that big a cast as opposed to what you've been working with with Kid Pivot?
1: Yeah, it was, um, I, was, I was braced for it to be more different than it was. Um, I was nervous about entering that other world. Um, I never danced in a big ballet company myself, so I, I didn't really know what it would be like being there. Um, yeah, and working under the, that kind of hierarchy and that, that structure, all the, uh, the the rules, the schedule, the union, all, so many things that I had never really encountered in, uh, previously. Um, but what I discovered is once I actually just got into the studio with the actual dancers and just started making actual choreography, it was all very normal and very familiar and just like everywhere. So that was a relief. And... Uh, And and it was a large cast. It was 36 dancers in that piece. And I was also expecting that, imagining myself, I'd never worked with that many people before. I imagined that I'd be standing on a chair with a megaphone, you know, in the studio trying to... But it wasn't like that at all. It was very, very manageable and approachable. And since then, I've done pieces that were 54 dancers, that were 66 dancers. And similarly, quite an intimate experience, even with that many people in the room. I think dancers are just good at being together in a space and and listening, and connecting, and being present. Um.
0: Not always, but with you, they are. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, are there any dancers in the audience? (laughs) Yeah, there's one. Um, But actually, seriously, um, there is an environment in the studio when you're working that is, I think, unique to you. Um, It feels collaborative, and it feels supportive, and I think every dancer feels that you're invested in their success and their collective success. Um, is, that you, is that something that you aim to do in the studio or it's just who you are?
1: I'm not sure, I always just feel like I'm reflecting back what I, what I receive, so maybe I've just been lucky.
0: Yeah, I've, I haven't seen you in the front of the room with the megaphone once. No, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> but you're, you're moving around, encouraging, guiding um, in a way that empowers everybody.
1: I mean, I like, a, I like anyone, I like a positive environment, and I feel like I do better when there isn't any conflict in the room and that everyone feels like they can give the best of themselves and they feel support. I think it brings out the best in everyone, which then just brings out the best in the work. And that's not to say there isn't conflict in, in the production itself and in, even in the bodies. And that there's we, we need conflict. We need to build tension with that. But in terms of just relating to each other in a space and trying to make something together, then I'm trying to cultivate, like, or create the conditions for um, for people to feel respected and, and safe and and trusted and all that.
0: Um, Flight Patterns was a, a rather large project and really addressed an issue that our world faces today. Can you tell us a little bit about that for the Royal?
1: So Flight Pattern was a work that I just created at the Royal Ballet in, in London just this past March. And... Uh, like, actually like Plot Point, it began with a choice of music. Um, I was given the opportunity to work with orchestra, which is quite rare for me. And as I was searching for a piece of music, I had stacks and stacks of CDs and links and all kinds of things to listen to. Um, but this was a long time before the premiere happened. Um, and I had to deliver my choice of music to the, to the music director. Uh, and of course, I was just... I was just really consumed with what was happening in the news at the time when I was finding it really hard to concentrate on choosing music when there was this massive refugee crisis happening and I, I was confused about what I should even be spending my time doing. and So it was in a moment where I found Goretzky's uh, Symphony Number no. 3, which I was kind of listening to almost as a a palate cleanser, as a way to clear my head. I was listening to all this really intellectual, really challenging, really clever music, and then I would take a break and listen to Goretzky's Symphony 3 as a way to just I don't know, I don't know, just come, center myself. I never considered using it for the actual production because it was too famous, it was too obvious, it was like who would ever accept me working with Goresky Symphony No. 3, there's no way anyone's ever gonna agree to it. But then when I listened to it and thought about current events, I realized that through that music there was a way to connect what I was wondering about in terms of the humanitarian crisis I want, and, and this, through this piece of music wondered if, I could, if that could be my kind of way in to that content and, and as it turned out uh, the music director and the artistic director were totally on board with me using this piece despite its fame and, uh, and so I, I jumped in I was, and I had an incredible experience working with it and with them.
0: I remember you were here in Seattle when you were grappling with these music choices right. for Paris Opera oh. and for Royal and you had sort of that moment of, I found it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's often the music that's the key that would open the door for a piece in essence. Um, tell us now about Bernard Herrmann's score right. and, and wha- how that was a source of inspiration.
1: Well, I, I ha- again had the opportunity to uh, use the orchestra at Netherlands Dance Theatre and. Um, They don't normally work with orchestra there. It must have been a special birthday year or something. I can't remember what the occasion was, but they suddenly had the opportunity to work with orchestra. And I had just done a piece recently to um, something from Citizen Kane. So I had been listening to a lot of Bernard Herrmann's music. And so that's the first thing I started listening to when I was on that search, was Bernard Herrmann, thinking about film scores and thinking about how they're so evocative and how they're built to support action and emotion. And um, that they you know, they tend to be really great music for dance, and and so I listened to hours and hours of his music and finally settled on on his on the um, the film score of Psycho. And I wasn't interested in the storyline of Psycho. I didn't want to make Psycho the ballet. That's for sure. <laughs>
0: Thank you. <laughs> yeah.
1: um, But the music, as you'll hear, I mean, everybody knows the famous shower scene music. You know, everyone can sing that probably. This whole audience could probably sing that together. right? We don't want to hear that. We don't want you to, but um, you can imagine it. And so, but the rest of the the score is so beautiful and so powerful and so evocative. And so because of the choice of music, I started thinking about screenplay and um, what is screenplay? And is it something that I could translate into choreography? What are the elements of story? What is three-act structure? Um, what is what is our insatiable need for story? Um, and what does story mean? So rather than try to create a work that was telling any particular story, I wanted to, this plot point to be about the makings of story and screenplay. And trying to think about ways to um, put a storyboard on stage um, I thought that taking the idea of of these sketches and scaling them up for the stage would be an interesting way of getting at some of the structures and techniques of of filmmaking.
0: You have an amazing collaborative team that you worked with on this project and it's often your team. Um, This is Jay, this is Nancy, this is Owen, this is Alan. Um, Are you the lead or is it um, everybody's contributing concept? How does this work?
1: I mean, I usually, I usually throw some ideas out there and, pe- and it bounces off all my design team, my collaborators, and, and we, we work together in parallel. Um, I mean, I guess, yeah, ultimately the, you know, the final decisions, and the, how we go forward is up to me. Um, but I love collaborating and I love the people that I work with and I get so much inspiration and so much energy from them and, and what they contribute. And I really like the way this team has come together, particularly in the context of Plot Point. I think it's, uh, it's a really evocative world that they've made.
0: Each member of this team has a significant contribution that you'll come away admiring. Sets are quite, um, well, Mm two-dimensional, I think is the word that you've often used, but really uh, wonderful architecture against which to see action um, and not to overpower action. Um, Costumes are classic. I mean, they really are. Tell us about the replica costumes and the concept of the replicas.
1: Well, when I was thinking about making a, a work about a screenplay, um, I started by doing what you're supposed to never do, which is make a make a storyboard before you have a story and build a maquette before you know what your what your storyline is. But that's what I did, and um, I was working kind of with tropes. So I was working with the. The grifter, the, the con man, and his sidekick, and a couple of thugs, and I was working with uh, Mrs. Jones and and, and Mr. Smith. I was the other way around. Mrs. Smith and Mr. Jones, and a kind of story of adultery between them, and uh, just sort of tropes and kind of classic storylines that I thought I could um, use as a starting off point. And Jay and I made a a, a maquette, um, and we looked at the maquette and we looked at these these people in the maquette, which you know those little um, white plastic people that you'll find in an architectural model that are there to kind of show scale? So that's what we kind of had in this essay. That's what I want them to look like. I want them to look like those little white plastic people. <laughs> and so there's a group of, of characters in plot point that look like those little white plastic people. And they're there to show the, the basic plot points of the narrative. And we, we kind of we use them as a way to structure a storyboard. And then the other characters, which are dressed in recognizable human-looking clothes um, with faces exposed and all their skin, and um, they are like the, the the characters fleshed out, like the real-world um, characters. And so sometimes you'll see that real-world character right beside her replica, and you'll see the difference in style, but you'll still recognize the... The, uh, the plot points kind of connecting through those two characters together. That sounds really complicated. It's, it's, <laughs> I, hopefully it's not that complicated when you watch it.
0: No, I like, I appreciate hearing that, too, because I wanted to know how you would explain that, so thank you. I will, I, <laughs> I will tell you, I walked home after watching a run-through, and this is going to happen to you, too. Those little white people are everywhere. <laughs> They are, like when the walk sign man comes on, it's a replica, and then there's the bike path man that has the hum- help, so just to warn you when you leave here, but <laughs> thank you, you found the secret. They're, they all have personalities, and I swear they watch me. Um, what is a replica, I mean, as an extension of a fleshed out human, um, how is a replica different in its action or motivations?
1: I like to think of the replicas uh, achieving kind of stop motion, so um, we get to see them move kind of, it's it's sometimes quite jarring, from one gesture to the next without a lot of flow in between, sort of hitting a series of gestures like you would see a stop motion animation happen. So that was a physicality we were trying to cultivate. Um, And similarly with the set, it's just a kind of broad strokes kind of sketch of what will one day perhaps become a, a fully fledged film um, it's just' is just drawn quickly like a line drawing on paper, and so the physicality of the replicas has been interesting to try to develop um, find, trying to find the minimal amount of movement to show a particular emotion or gesture or, or or plot point story like what does it mean when the chest is is in as opposed to out or the head is tilted or straight or looking front or or pulled back in relationship to the shoulders, So all these little teeny tiny shifts of of head in relationship to shoulders and hands in relationship to face and hips. I mean, it's just so beautiful to play with all the story and all that language that's inherent in the body and see it broken down, kind of deconstructed or analyzed like that. That was the impulse.
0: There's um, a certain amount of it's... There's violence in this, um, and there are violent scenes, but also in a way that allows us to look and study and distill. Um, What is the... Is there any take on what we're seeing in the world as far as violence in this piece, or is it really just a study of a genre in a way?
1: It's more of a study of a genre, absolutely. like I said, I didn't want to make Psycho the ballet, but it's also, I don't really like the, the sort of slasher genre, genre that was uh, inspired by Psycho. I, I find it really difficult. I don't watch it. I don't care about it. Um, so this was really meant to be, um, yeah, an analysis of a particular genre. And I'm not trying to tell any one particular story. I'm trying to get the, at the idea or the question of story and what it means and, what, and how we need it.
0: This piece, and I, maybe this is true of many pieces you've done, it's had two incarnations. Uh, originally made for a Netherlands Dance Theater in 2010. Um, what is the difference between the first version and, and what we're seeing tonight?
1: Well, the first version um, was 47 minutes long. This new version is about 35. So I've I've edited it down, hopefully distilled it, made it a little bit more watertight. Um, there was a. A whole storyline that was in that original production that I just took right out because I felt like it wasn't necessarily adding anything more to the to the work Um, I've yeah just internally changed a lot of things within the scenes to try to find more clarity and um, more specificity in the movement but also more connection between the replica and his or her character double
0: you're working with dancers that you've worked with before, many of them in Emergence. Um, how do the dancers affect that process? Do you see a body and go with where it's taking you?
1: Yeah, I always try to work with the person that's in front of me in the moment. Um, it's always a it's always a a dance between us, right? It's like I'm trying to to um, propose what I would like, you know, through out of my own body or out of um, just through just through words, and then they have their also their possibilities in their bodies, and also their limitations. And so it's trying to figure out where we can meet, in between. And I like to I like to try to deliver the skills and abilities of the person that's in front of me. That takes time, though. We don't always have time to do an in depth analysis of <laughs> of all of that. But um, yeah, it's been it's been such a pleasure to to bring this to life again through these dancers and they're so earnest and committed and um, and skilled and precise and consistent and
0: And on behalf of the dancers who are and aren't here, the pleasure is even more on there, and they're thrilled with this process with you, I know. So thank you for that. You move so beautifully and articulately in the studio. Are you still performing?
1: No, 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 I don't perform anymore. I don't even warm up anymore. I haven't, yeah, I haven't really danced for real since, you know, about seven years. So I hurl myself around every once in a while, but it's at great cost. (laughs) It's It's like some part of me still remembers how it felt so I can kind of, I can show just about anything once. <laughs> that's it. And
0: you just bring in the curtain. The yeah, curtain. <laughs> yeah, that's right.
1: No, I do. I miss, I miss dancing and I miss performing, of course, but I don't have time to train anymore. And, and it's, it's, you know, when you're spending more time in physio than you are in a studio, then, yeah. then it's not healthy. Yeah.
0: I'm also amazed that your contribution is obviously as a choreographer, but in every aspect of a creation or a piece, your hands-on and investing And, and some choreographers aren't some choreographers are tasking a lighting designer to fix that problem but your level of detail and commitment is that that's who you are is that something you saw others do was that Bill Forsyth's example was
1: I guess so I like I always think of it I always think of every aspect at every stage so when I even have the first idea of something I always think of it as a as a thing that exists on a stage with lights and sound and gosh, I always think of the, the, the whole picture um, that's present from the first moment for sure. Um, and even as a, as a, kid on this on this you know the auditorium stage in my elementary school. You know those lights that you have back where they have like you turn them on and there's like the green one, there's the red, the blue, and the yellow lights and you can flick them on. And you could you guys you probably didn't do that in your in your schools, did you? <laughs> well I spent a lot of time backstage in my elementary school auditorium just playing with lights. Even they were so simple, the curtain. You know, you could pull the cord and it would close and open. I spent hours just playing with this stuff. It's always been part of um, how I've thought about theater and how i thought about making things for the theater uh, from those early silly days of flicking switches to what I do now, which is to collaborate with a lighting designer.
0: I totally want to see it's this high school thing. musical. I just know it's, it's, <laughs> like, it's not your average high school musical. <laughs> um, you have a lot coming up. I know you're headed to Chicago. You have a full evening with Hubbard Street, mm-hmm. a company. I don't know how much you've worked with Hubbard Street before. Is it quite just a bit? Just once before. Oh, just once before. Yeah. Okay. Tell us a little bit about that evening and what it's like working with them.
1: Oh, well, uh, Hubbard Street in Chicago, they, um, they're they doing a full evening of my work in, in December. It's three different pieces, uh, two that I made for my own company. Um, and a third piece that I made for Cedar Lake Contemporary Ballet uh, when they were still going back in 2011, I think I made it. It's called Grace Engine. It's a work for 16 dancers. So um, they're working on it right now as we speak, and I'm um, I have some lovely <coughs> colleagues that are there doing the work of remounting those pieces for me, and then I'll go back and and uh, do the final staging and cheer them on for the performances. But they're. Um, Yeah, it's a contemporary company, so a very different style of dance or style of movement, and and so therefore a different style of work that I chose to give them.
0: Can you talk about any other future projects?
1: Future projects? Well, what I'm working on right now mostly is um, other than Plot Point, which is coming soon. is uh, a work for my own company, the next show that I'm making for my own company, which premieres in 2019, so early 2019, but I'm at the first stages of working on that piece. I'm collaborating with a writer, playwright, Jonathan Young, who is the same writer that I collaborated with for Height. We co-created that work, and we're going to co-create this one. And I, there's, I mean, there's, there's a lot to say about it, but maybe if I could just keep it short, I would say it contains... It's not the only thing, but it will contain a farce. We're working on a farce, a political farce that will be part of the show. And it's one aspect of a polyphonic work. So stay tuned.
0: <laughs> it's a great trailer right there. So <laughs> um, I will take questions from you guys, but I just want to give another shout out to C. Betroffenheit when it comes back to Seattle at the Moor. Um, it, it is intense. It gets under your skin, and it is dripping with brilliance. So, um, don't miss it. But maybe take a melatonin before you go. <laughs> You'll be fine. So, <laughs> okay. no, yeah. yeah. Questions? Must be one. Yeah. Andre. Um, well, my MAR teacher Eva Stone. She she watched one of your rehearsals, and she heard you use the word brittle. She really liked that. So she wanted to know um, what your other favorite words are to help dancers understand the textures that you desire. This is, this is a student of ours, Andre, in the front row. And he's remembering our, our modern teacher, Eva Stone, had quoted, Crystal is using the word brittle to inspire a movement. And what are some of the other words you might use?
1: Hmm. Brittle. Well, when we were talking about being brittle, we were talking about the replica and this feeling that they, they were made of glass or that something that they, could, that they could break or they would be turned into shards. Or um, And so that was a kind of way of breaking movement down into things that felt like, I'm thinking of other words right now, like jagged or um, breakable. Uh, then there can be, um, gosh, yeah, I would use a lot of words. I'm trying to think what else I might use to get someone um, like, I remember today just asking Will and Kyle if they could be more noodly. like so when they, when they hit each other at the height, when they smash into each other, that they would smash like glass, and then as they're descending to the floor that they would turn into noodles. Cooked noodles. <laughs> Overcooked noodles. I should have said that, maybe that's what I missed was the cooked part. I'll tell them that before the show, cooked noodles. And then, that's another, try trying to think of another image. Um, then there's like things that are more to do with character, like curiosity or desperation or the feeling, the feeling of being destabilized or um, flattened, squashed. I also love to talk about degrees of pressure in the body. So um, you can fall to the floor or you can fall to the floor if you feel there's upward pressure coming from the earth. So it's hard to get down, like as if it's you have to push your body into the... Like the way you would push down on a bicycle, a bicycle pump when the, when the tire's really full... And there's that last couple of like pumps, that's like, that's the feeling that you want to have in your body as you're trying to get down to the floor It takes that kind of work. He's practicing right now. I don't know if you can see him <laughs> thinking it through the, the kind of work that it would take to get low. Just some examples.
0: I'm going to jump in with a question. What, what are you reading?
1: I'm reading, um, this is going to be a giveaway to the farce thing, but I'm reading um, The government inspector the play by Gogol. It's being performed here. It just was performed here. Did anybody see it? Did anyone go? What did you think? You loved it? Why? <laughs> like what was, no, but why was it, what was good about it? What is it? Was it the production itself? Everything was perfect. The timing was perfect, the staging, you know, it just goes up to the top, but not over. That's great to hear. That's very inspiring. That gives me some hope. That's great.
0: Other questions? Thank you for being here and supporting the ballet. Yes, yeah, Sandy. You were talking about um, using
1: film scores because they are designed to support something And I'm wondering, since um, you didn't want to make Psycho Ballet, mm-hmm. but you're using a score that was designed to support that process. When you were making this originally, did you feel that the score would would send you in a direction like that because that's what it was originally designed to do? Did you have to impose a new, a, a, a new attitude on it mm-hmm. almost in
0: order to not have it take by the hand and lead you down the path? paraphrase quickly and poorly, but um, really that the Psycho score is an action mover and has its own plot that sort of carries with it, and how did you battle that or embrace that?
1: Yeah, I wondered if the music, like, you, like you're like you wondering, it, does the music become a kind of map that forces you down a particular road in terms of content or storyline? Um, and I found that it didn't. It is full of suspense and tension and conflict and all those good things, but I don't feel like it pushed me I also don't know the movie very well. I've never been able to watch the whole thing. So I wasn't also forced by my own associations into a particular direction. Um, I just found it uh, it, it supported the, the things that I wanted to create on stage, but it didn't force me into any corners. Yes. Obviously comes from music. Is there any other source of inspiration that you use from time to time besides just music?
0: Recognizing crystals. Inspiration from music, and are there other sources of inspiration?
1: I would say it's actually more rare for me to start with a piece of music than it is for me to start with a content or an, or an idea. I usually start there first and then find a piece of music that will fit that. But there have been some occasions where I've had the opportunity to work with an orchestra or an actual piece of music that already exists has been offered to me. Can you choreograph something to this? Yes, I can or no I can't, I, I, it depends. Um, but I'm, I'm inspired by oh, by many things. I'm inspired mostly by, by big questions. I like, I like to tackle um, content that feels like it's uh, beyond me. Feel, I like to feel, well, I don't like this feeling, but I know, I make, I know I'm going to make a better show if I feel like I'm not smart enough to make it. You know, if I feel like the, whatever it is that I'm trying to evoke or share, when it feels like it's just a bit beyond my reach, then I, then I feel like I'm in fertile territory not comfortable at all but I do like to be there. Um, so I, I like to work with big unanswerable questions. Things that um, that I don't understand or that maybe actually can't be understood. Um, I'm charged up by that. And the more, I guess the more I do this and um, I guess the, the more careful and um, consequent I'm being about the things I choose to work, the, the ideas that I choose to work with.
0: Do you have a question? Yeah, one of those <laughs> special words in the screening studio rehearsal that jumped out at me was when you told the uh, the dancers to be like hieroglyphic. Uh-huh. And I was wondering if that you would actually that was a reference to those images in Egyptian wall paintings with sort of two dimensional painting. This gentleman, I'm referring, we live streamed a rehearsal with Crystal just a few days ago, actually, um, and there was a reference to hieroglyphics. Um, is that from when we were tune? working
1: with the uh, the physicality of the replica? Um, I was thinking about how the the um, first of all the set elements are are flat; they're quite two dimensional, and I was wondering if the dancers could cultivate that kind of. Um, aesthetic in their movements, so thinking of like a flat plane and thinking of everything happening inside, so all the little shifts happening within a a flat plane. Um, There's also one scene that you'll you'll see tonight where there's a a woman who is um, entirely in black, so she looks like a shadow. And then she becomes very just two-dimensional. She's kind of silhouetted against the rest of the action. And so I was trying to particularly cultivate her two-dimensional quality. And in that sense, speaking of hieroglyphics, because they have that—they have that thing, you know, that thing that they do. Their feet, you know, their feet are always like this. <laughs> but, yeah, you see the whole, yeah, and the nose, yeah. It's
0: interesting they didn't know how to draw a frontal foot, so that's right. why they did it that way. Yeah, it's,
1: it's hard like, to draw a frontal foot. Yeah. Have you tried to draw a foot that faces that way? It always looks like a stump. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yes. Ah, harking, yes. (laughs) Your great response to the unanswerable questions. What are some of them?
1: Um, Things like the question of suffering. That was um, what we were searching. Um, We were, sorry, not that we were searching. Of course, we're always searching. But um, it was the content we were using um, as the source for Betroffenheit. It was a question of suffering, um, which I would say is probably the same... Question: When I was working on the piece about refugees uh, recently, "Flight Pattern," um, the question of what moves us, um, the what, it, um, what is God, big questions. Where? Wh- what are we? Big, big <laughs> questions. Um, so many things. It depends on the project. It depends on the project and depends on the people that I'm working with and and what I'm willing to reach for.
0: I'll take a last one. if we Yeah, in the middle, in the back. Um, when experiencing a creative
1: block, where are some go for you to
0: get out of it? When experiencing a creative block, what would you go to to get out of it?
1: Um, so many things. Uh, sometimes just to take a break, to go for a walk. Um, sometimes to just work harder, sometimes to stop that thing that I'm that I'm stuck on and just work on some other aspect. Like uh, it could be um, refining something that I've already made, just refining and defining something, or it could be um, researching something a little further. Um, sometimes I'll I'll just if I'm in a studio full of people and I'm blocked, I'll, I'll try to delegate, get everybody busy doing something so that I can have a little bit of space to think. Um, it's particularly in those. Um, when I'm in a room surrounded by a lot of people and I have a block, that that's the most difficult. It's okay to not know what you're doing when you're alone and you're just in front of your notebook. But when you're in a room full of people, it can be really, really hard not to have a moment of not knowing. So um, one of my coping strategies for that is to just get people busy, kind of delegate and get them busy so I can have a a moment to think. Um, A nice strong cup of coffee (laughs) will sometimes help. Uh, and also just changing up what I'm working on. So if I'm working on text, then I'll ch- change it up and work on, on actual choreography. If I'm having trouble b- building up um, physical material, then I'll focus on sound. Like, see, I'll just be searching for a sound that might inspire me. Um, and sometimes it's just just trying to stay in it, stay in it, just keep trying, just keep trying. Keep st- I mean, I do, I do believe that. I do believe that I can if I just keep working on whatever it is, I like lean into the sharp point that eventually something's gonna give. Um, It it usually helps.
0: It's been an inspiration for us to have you with us these weeks and we're looking forward to tonight and you're so articulate sharing your time with us. So thank Thank you all, thank you Krista.